welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Excellent. Well, for those that uh, haven't been here, we're up to Acts chapter 12. And tonight, the message I'm speaking on, I've entitled Prison Break. Prison Break, and you'll know why in just a minute. I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter 12, and I'm only going to read through verses 1 to 11, and I'll just fill you in a little bit of the other detail later on. But starting from verse uh, 1, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Then when he saw this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. James and Peter were leaders in the church, pillars in the early church. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. That night, sorry, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards, and they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches. And from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. And so I just want to have a look at a few things from this account that we have here tonight. Okay, we see Peter had been arrested, or sorry, James and Peter had been, uh, it was Herod's intention to persecute the church. And so he started by arresting James and he had him beheaded with a sword. We see that the Jews were quite excited by that little notion, and so he proceeded then to arrest Peter. And we see that he had Peter surrounded by 16 guards, four guards at a time, rotating through the night. Because if you don't remember back a little bit a while ago, Peter had been in jail with John, I think it was, and they had been miraculously released previously. And so I'm sure Herod didn't want that to happen again, and so he's got Peter under double guard. And um, his intention, as we read was ultimately, after the Passover, similar to the period of time when Jesus was, um, was uh, arrested. Okay? And so for Peter, and again, it's amazing the way that religious people can, can keep the, the letter of the law, but miss the spirit of the law. And so here they are doing a great injustice to this man, Peter. It's, just, it's going to be a sham of a trial. It's basically it's going to be set him up, give him a bit of a show trial before the people in order to kill him. It was already a done deal. But this was happening the week, uh, in the past week of the Passover. And so there was a weekend to get through because he didn't want to do anything nasty on the weekend. And so we're waiting through. So there was a few days that Peter would have been in jail. And in that time, the Bible tells the church was praying for him. And so I just want to start off initially just by having a look at Herod's intentions. Okay, um, Acts chapter 12, verse 1 to 4. His intention. We know that his intention was to persecute the church. And then 
Beyond that, his intention was to kill Peter. And I don't know about you, but this is definitely a case of bad things happening to good people. I mean, James and Peter were good people in every sense of the word. They were people that they weren't hurting people, they were healing people. They weren't causing discord and division. They were talking about the love of God and people loving one another. They weren't calling people to rebellion in the, in the, um, in, in the terrorist sense of the word, but they were calling to people to rebel against things like selfishness and to rebel against things like just isolationism and those sort of things. He was calling people together. He was calling people to, into a, a better place. He was calling people to be citizens and to live in community. And everything they did was a source of blessing to the community in which they lived. He was calling people to help the poor and to look after the sick and the disenfranchised. And he was, they were providing hope. Bad things happening to good people. And I think what I just want to talk about initially here is just the fact that, you know, this often confuses people when bad stuff happens to good people. And who gets the blame straight up? It's usually God. When bad stuff happens to good people, it's like, oh, where's God in that? How could God possibly allow it? If God's good, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know how the argument goes. You've probably heard it many times. You've possibly even said it yourself. And so I just want to remind us this evening that there's a few other things we need to take into consideration here. We need to remember that ultimately it was mankind that rebelled against the will of God, the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. God set man up in paradise, in the ultimate existence, if you like. In his pleasing and perfect will. There was no sickness. There was no death. There was no pain. It seems that all the animals got along together. It seems that everything they wanted was at their their fingertips. They didn't have to work for a living. For ladies, there wasn't going to be pain in childbirth and all that sort of stuff. God set us up to win. But man, in his wisdom, decided to reject God's good, pleasing and perfect will and to exercise his own will. And so doing, he brought us into this position in which we are now living which I guess is, if, to sum it up, we're living in a broken world, essentially. We're living in a world that, I guess, has parameters that fall not within God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, but within the realms of his permissive will. And God's permissive will, at this stage, at the natural level, includes things like death. It includes things like disease. It includes things like natural disasters. It includes things like evil and selfish agendas. It even includes things like mistakes made by good people with the very best intentions that impact people negatively and cause suffering, pain, and even death. That's part of God's permissive will. He allows that to happen, ultimately, because he wants us to come back to himself. When something's, everything's not as it should be, it causes us to look for answers. When we get to the end of ourselves, it causes us to look beyond ourselves. And so God, in his grace didn't leave us just cruising along in paradise once we'd rejected him and and, and the relationship had been broken. To do so would have been condemn us to hell, unconditioned. There would have been no $200. It would have been, we would not pass go. Just, that would be our state. And we'd be happily just going there. We wouldn't even know there was a problem. But God brought a curse into the earth in order that every one of us would struggle. Every one of us would feel the pain and the alienation from God and the suffering that comes with that and death and all of those things that we might reach out back to God. So that's one side of it at a natural level. At a supernatural level, a spiritual level, we're also living on planet Earth is the point where two kingdoms currently are colliding, two spiritual kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God. Of course, God is the head of that kingdom and that, that kingdom is administrated by our God. 
But that kingdom consists of, of the church, obviously, but also many, many, many unseen angelic spiritual beings. The other side of the kingdom is the one led by Satan, the one who ultimately was able to lure man out of God's presence. And so there's this malicious kingdom, if you like, that is fighting against the work of God. That everything that God said is good, the devil is trying to ruin. Everything that God says I love, the devil is trying to destroy. And so we're living at the point where these two things are, are butting heads, if you like. These two kingdoms are coming together and clashing. And so just as, the, like I said, just as we see the angel involved in Peter's rescue, ultimately, so too there are demonic spirits, there are evil spirits that are, out, that are malicious and they have evil intentions for your life. They don't want to bless you. They want to curse you. They don't want your life to be good and comfortable. They want it to be painful and full of suffering and heartache and despondency. All of that, I guess, goes some way to explaining why bad things happen to good people. And on the other side, I guess, why good things happen to bad people. Again, you've got an enemy that is working against the good You've got one who is promoting the bad. And so sometimes you look around and you think, well, not only is bad things happening to good people, but there's so many good things. How come those wicked people are living in luxury? How come those wicked people seem to be popular? How come those wicked people don't have to seem to have struggles with their children or whatever it might be? So we come back to our text. We see that Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. James was killed. Peter was imprisoned with the intention of killing him. Bad things. Why? They weren't criminals, they weren't terrorists, as I mentioned. They weren't hurting people, etc. But Herod's intentions, I guess, could be attributed to many things. I mean, we could look at his own insecurities, we could look at greed, we could look at all that sort of stuff. But we need to understand that behind all of that, because it still doesn't make sense, even if you've got those things, it doesn't make sense to persecute the church for what they were doing. We've got to understand that behind all of that, stands this unseen spiritual realm. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. We spoke about the fact with Ananias and Sapphira, how the Holy Spirit inspired Barnabas to do something amazing, something generous, something wonderful. But then he used Ananias and Sapphira and he worked on their weaknesses and he got them to lie to God. And he brought something negative and something ugly out of that. And so we need to understand there's an enemy who was using people's insecurities, their weaknesses, their flaws against them and ultimately against the world in which we live. It's the same is true today. You think about the church. You think about all the good that goes on. If we could collect the good, you know, it, it would be innumerable, the amount of good deeds that the church is doing throughout the world in this present day, never mind in the past 2,000 years. And yet, do we, read present, uh, do we read good news about the church in the papers? All you get is bagging the church. All you get is scam this and Wicked that, and you know, it's just all negative, 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 negative press about the church. It doesn't make sense, but it's not supposed to because we're living in a battle zone and people's perceptions of the church are being distorted, not by their own will. If, if they sat down to think about it, they would realize that what they're doing is irrational, but they're not. They're allowing their insecurities, their fears, their skepticism and cynicism, and all these things to, to rule their lives. And the devil gets on it and he amplifies it and magnifies it so that. The church is caught in the situation that it is right now. So there's nothing new. When the church is persecuted, misunderstood, uh, the reputation is besmirched, all that, there's nothing new. This is just, to me, it's just evidence that there really is a devil, that there really is a spiritual realm beyond that which we can see. 
We shouldn't be intimidated by that. We should actually, we should actually uh, be inspired by it. I've said before, you know, when you read your Bible, and you could read a novel and read it all night, the moment you pick up your Bible to read it, you sometimes you feel tired, you, feel, you get distracted. It's all evidence that there's a real devil. But the good news is that if there's a real devil, there's a real God. <laughs> yeah, that's good, I reckon. So while Herod was the human instrument instigating this persecution, at the end of the day, he was just the pawn in some bigger game. And so to, my, to us, this evening, I just want to ask this question as we start. Whose kingdom are you advancing? Through your words, through your attitudes, and through your actions, whose kingdom are you advancing? And I don't even think just saying, well, I'm a Christian, obviously I'm advancing the kingdom of God, is a good enough answer. Because we can be a Christian... But if we're living out of our insecurities, if we're full of greed, if we have got issues with people, ultimately the enemy will use that against us and ultimately against those whom God has called us to live with. And so let's determine in our hearts to not be a pawn in his game, but to yield ourselves to God again and again and again and again, to ask God to help us to live in ways that are building his kingdom, that are blessing his people, and not to get caught up in some other thing that doesn't emanate from God. That's the first thing. So his intentions ultimately were backed by this evil force. The second thing we see is that the church, I guess, are thrown into disarray because suddenly two of their greatest leaders, the most prominent leaders, one's suddenly dead and the other one's just about dead, but the church is spurred to action. And I love this. I mean, today what would happen in a situation like that, possibly we'd see a whole bunch of action in the church but we wouldn't necessarily see what they did. We might see petitions. We might see protests organised. We might even, in some cases, see people taking up arms. We might see people going on hunger strikes. These are all options when, when, when things aren't going your way. These are all options available to you. They could try and go above the head of Herod and complain to the Roman governor. They could even try and plan a prison break as unlikely and as ugly as that might possibly turn out. But they didn't do any of those things. What they did, it says the church was earnestly praying to their Father in heaven for Peter. They realised that God has the final say. Yes, they could throw a petition. Yes, they could protest. Yes, they could go on a hunger strike. Yes, they, yes, they, yes, they could do all of these things. And not one thing could change. But they went to God who had the final say. I just want to mention a few things about their prayer. Some of these things are, are obvious in the scripture, some perhaps not so obvious. I'm reading into a little bit, but I think they, these things are borne out in the rest of scripture. The first thing it obviously says that it was earnest prayer. It wasn't just, ah, oh, see how we go. But it was earnest prayer. It was something that emanated from the very depths of their being. I mean, they were gutted when James was killed. And Peter was arrested. I mean, they did not know what the future held. They just knew, God, you've got to do something here. I mean, these were like their friends. These were their leaders. They, 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 they were just moved from the very innermost being to cry out to God in desperation. They were passionate. They were zealous in their prayer. It wasn't like, ah, oh, see how I feel if I go to the prayer meeting. It was like, guys, if we don't do something, Peter is a dead man. Let's pray. Let's get together and pray. 
Not, oh, kids playing sport or, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. There's so many excuses that would get in the way of our prayer. But the thing that we've got to realize is that while Peter's situation was obviously desperate, there are so many situations around us today that are desperate. It's not so obvious. We just don't take the th- they don't hit us so hard. They're not so obvious to us, but they're still nonetheless just as dangerous, just as eternal in their consequences. And so we need to be stirring ourselves up and becoming earnest and fervent in our prayer. And I, you know, this, this church was, was birthed in prayer ultimately. And as you know, Tony's been saying a few times just of late, and some of our meetings, you know, is it too much to expect that people would get together and pray? Is it too much to expect that people would be earnest in their prayer and not begrudging in their prayer? I mean, this is a lifeline to us. This is all we've got, really. I mean, we are in enemy territory. And we need reinforcements. We need supplies. We need to be equipped from heaven, not from earth. And so their prayer was earnest. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. I love this scripture. It says, The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth, looking to strengthen those who are fully committed to him. And I just love that. And I just see this, that when people are desperate for God, when people are passionate in prayer, not just passionate for passionate sake, but passionate with purpose, understand that if we don't do this, if we don't intercede or intervene in this situation, if we don't petition God, people are going to die. Our, our society is going to go from bad to worse, and so on and so forth. God loves it, and he's drawn to people that are passionate. The second thing is it was united. They got together, and they prayed, and they continued to get together, and they prayed. Obviously, Matthew 18, verse 19, many of us would know this scripture. It talks about you know, where two or three are gathered in my name. There am I in the midst of them. It says, if two of you would agree as touching anything on earth, I will do it. And again, I love the fact there was agreement here. It was just they were rallied around this desperate situation of Peter. They weren't coming with their own agendas. They weren't, some, some, it doesn't seem to me that some would be saying, oh, well, you know, he's a little bit brash, Peter. I don't know that I can really agree with this prayer. You know what I'm saying? There was an intentionality about their praying. They were together in this thing. No one wanted to see Peter die. And I just, I just think, you know, there's something in that. You know, when we come to church, often there's so many different agendas. There's so many different things going on in our lives. And God just wants us to get the main thing, the main thing. And to remember that we're in a world of, of sick and dying people, physically and spiritually. And if we will get together around that sort of call, we can expect that our prayers are going to be answered. But when it's, about, when it's around our own little agendas, and God, you know, judge them because they said something nasty about me, or you know, all the, the petty stuff that we can get caught up in praying about. We're not united. And we, didn't, we, we shouldn't expect God to hear us when we're not united and we're divided over little things. The third thing is persistent. Again, Jesus spoke about the, the parable of the persistent widow. And the fact is they started praying the moment these guys hit jail and they continued. And it says the night before the trial. So it was a period of days. I just imagine they were continually meeting. And I, and I just imagine that as people were, you know, that they perhaps had to get to work, um, they would leave and they'd come back and continue the prayer meeting. So they had to make some people probably bring food along, and these sort of things would be happening because it was desperate times. And so this consi- they were just persisting. They didn't just take it for granted, oh, we've prayed about that. But they continued to pray because they hadn't yet seen a breakthrough. They needed to continue to pray. They were audacious in their prayers. Now, again, if we look at the situation a little later on, 
We see they were surprised, genuinely, when Peter was at the door. But I don't believe that means that to say they weren't asking. I mean, possibly, you know, I've been in prayer meetings where you'd probably hear things like, Lord, James is dead, Peter's next. Please comfort him in his time of trouble and make it quick. <laughs> Have you ever been in prayer meetings like that? Like, lowest common denominator prayer, totally lacking in faith, nothing audacious about it. It's just like, just let things take the natural course and we'll just bless it at the end, you know? That's not what these guys were doing. I believe these guys were crying out. They'd seen miracles before. They knew God was a powerful God, a miracle-working God. And I believe they were crying out for his, uh, for his deliverance from, from jail. Probably crying out as well for Herod's death and, that, that, you know, as again, help us to preach the word boldly and all that sort of stuff. These guys weren't cowering and, and fearful and asking small. They were asking big things of God, that Peter would be released. Yes, God, God, there's more guards this time. Yes, he's probably further in the jail this time. There's all this stuff going, but God, you're bigger than that. God loves it when we get audacious. Remember uh, Moses, sorry, Abraham, when Sodom and Gomorrah was about to be judged. And, and, and Abraham saying, God, will you, look, there's a whole bunch of people in that city. In case he wasn't aware. But, you know, if 50 of them are right, would you destroy a city for the sake of 50 people? God says, okay, I'll, I won't. What about 40? Just keep bringing it down. What about 10? God says, I can find 10 people. I'll save the city. But he's just, he's just, and Moses, you know, God is going to destroy the Israelites. And Moses steps, he says, God, please don't do it. Because if you kill people, you, the people will think that you've come, you brought them in the desert with a wrong motive, a bad motive. And I just think God loves it when we stand up to him. Not in an arrogant way, not in a presumptuous way, but just, just I guess, in the, in the way that a, a child stands up to their dad. Just ask with expectation. Just believe in that we, you know, I think I love the sovereignty of God. I absolutely believe in the sovereignty of God. But I think the sovereignty of God can go to extremes where we almost become like Muslims, where it just becomes everything that happens is God's will. But I believe that God has called us to write history together with him. And yes, ultimately he will have his way, but I think he actually is listening to us when we pray. And the outcome of events actually is determined upon whether we pray, how we pray, and what we pray. James says you don't have sometimes because you don't ask. Other times you ask with impure motives. And so as we come before God with pure motives, wanting to see his name glorified, wanting to see people's lives improved, wanting to see people saved, etc., 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 it doesn't matter what the obstacles are, we can ask God big things. There's a story of um, Napoleon. And again, it may be an apocryphal story, but I love the point that it makes. And uh, apparently they'd won this battle on this island. Um, it'd been heavy fighting. And as they were celebrating the victory, one of the young officers comes to Napoleon and actually asks for the island. Now that we've won the island, can I have it? Well, that's pretty audacious. And all the senior officers are just mocking this guy and laughing at him. Napoleon asks one of them some paper and a pen and he writes out a deed to the island. They go, what the heck is this about? And Napoleon's response was, I've been honoured by the magnitude of his request. I've been honoured by the magnitude of his request. How honoured or how magnified is God by the magnitude of our requests? I mean, I'm all for praying for colds and sore toes and jobs and you know, things like but, but let's be honest, a lot of those things would sort themselves out just given the passing of time. 
I mean, you know, you've got a cold for a few days, generally speaking, you're going to get better. You knock your toe, generally speaking, your toenail will grow back. You know, you're out of work, generally speaking, you'll probably find work. I mean, I think it's good. We don't, we don't want to belittle and we don't want to not see God in everything in life because God ultimately, God ultimately does provide everything for us. Okay? So we don't want to, I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is, is there anywhere in our lives where we're asking things that are not likely to happen? I mean, it was unlikely for Peter to be released the way he was. Pretty unlikely. What are we asking for? I mean, your family and your friends, who are you praying for? Because there are some pretty unlikely characters out there to be saved, really. I mean, some of them we've got faith for. So, oh, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're 99% Christian in the way they live anyway. And so we pray for them to get saved because that, that's, God can do that. But there's a good chance they're already most of the way there. But what about those that are absolute mongrels? What about those that are so self-consumed? They, they're convinced that they are the God of this world. What about those that are entrenched in Islam? What about those that are entrenched in Buddhism or Hinduism or some other thing? Or, or, or those that are you know, just preaching atheism with a passion? Are we praying for them that they would be saved? What about those that are in the grip of addiction? Are we praying and believing that they can be set free? That they can live a life way beyond where they would ever be expected to live? Punching way above their weight, as it were. Because that's the sort of God that we serve. The God who's able to do more than we can ask or imagine, as Tone's already spoken about. You know, people come into this world and with all sorts of stuff. You know, limited IQ, limited skills, limited um, upbringing, limits, 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 horrible stuff happening in their lives and all that sort of stuff. Is it too much to believe that people can break out of where you would expect them to get to in life and live way beyond that by the grace of God. Are these the things that we're praying for? Are these the things we're expecting for others and expecting for ourselves? Or is it just like, well, you know, they've had a rough life. You know, there's a good chance they were going to get addicted anyway and we just have to tolerate them, befriend them. Maybe. I mean, yes, let's tolerate, let's befriend, let's embrace. But let's stand with and let's pray behind the scenes that God would break in because yeah. there are people in our midst that are demonically oppressed where spiritual powers are at work in their life trying to hold them back and rip them off at every turn there are people whose lives are so horrific that they're just their mind is, is just a, a jumble of horrible thoughts that they can't get past it's going to be the, the power of God to break in psychologists can't help psychiatrists can't help there are people who, with diseases in their bodies that, that but for the grace of God but for the power of God coming in and, and removing those things people will die and again just dying that's not the worst thing that can happen to someone but it's an opportunity for God to get the glory Jesus remember that you know, who sinned that this man was born blind no one it was that God might be glorified and so again, are our prayers audacious? Is there a possibility that we could look like an idiot because of the things that we're praying? If there is, that's good. Because the Bible's full of people who could look like idiots if nothing happens. But the thing is that things do happen when we bring our large requests to God because God wants to magnify his name. The last thing I want to just mention here is faith. 
You know, Jesus said that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, that we can say to the mountain, be removed. And when we look at their response, you know, they're in a prayer meeting still. And Peter rocks up at the door having, you know, I mean, he didn't even believe it when he was released. He's thinking he's just having a vision. The angel comes in, the chains drop off, the guards are asleep. He walks out these three gates, walks to the end of the street. And then he comes to say, wow, this is really happening. I'm actually getting cold. <laughs> and so he goes and knocks at, the, at John Mark's mum's place, knocks on the door, and, and Rhoda hears his voice. She's excited. She's the servant girl. She runs in and tells her, oh, Peter's at the door. Ah, oh, you idiot. <laughs> what are you talking about? And she's convinced, but she's forgot to let him in. So anyway, you know. <laughs> but the longest story is it's Peter. And they all get it. But they've been praying in faith. They've been praying, believing that God, God could do something, but not necessarily that he would do something. And I just, I just think there's something powerful in that. Because sometimes we think, well, do I really have faith for that? Do I not have faith for that? Do I, you know? But the fact that sometimes you've just got to get it out there. That audacious request, just get it out there into the atmosphere and let God do something with it. Rather than beat yourself up. I don't know if I'm really going to believe, I don't know if I can really expect that to happen. I love the, the father in, in Mark 9, when Jesus has just come down from the, the transfiguration on the mountain and, and um, he's complaining because he's taken his son to the disciples and the disciples have prayed for this young man who's, who's got a demonic spirit that's oppressing him and, and they couldn't do anything. And then Jesus, so he comes to Jesus and he's asking what the story is and, and Jesus says, anything's impossible for him who believes. And the man says, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. And so Jesus helps him in his unbelief by healing his son. Yeah. I think God wants to help us in our unbelief by doing some miraculous things, by doing some amazing things. So let's not beat ourselves up as to whether we really believe or don't believe. Or, let's just yeah. be faithful and ask God because God can do anything. I think we've got that. Will he? Well, in a sense, that's his prerogative. But let's give him the opportunity by asking because he wants to work with us. So we've looked at Herod's intentions, earnest intercession, and finally, let's look at divine intervention. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. He hears and he answers prayer. Not because he has to, because he doesn't have to do anything, but because he wants to. He's our Father in heaven. He wants us to come before him and he wants to do things on our behalf. Again, for any person here that's a father or a mother with kids, your first instinct is to bless. Your first instinct is to give. Your first instinct is to cause to smile and all those sort of things. The second, insta- the second thing you've got to do is think about it. Is this going to be the best thing for them now? But the first instinct, and I believe God's first instinct, is to give. And yes, sometimes he withholds because he knows that if we get something now, it's, it's not going to do us good and all that sort of stuff. But his first instinct is that he is loving, he is kind, he is gracious, he's generous. So he wants to answer our prayers. He wants to do the things that are impossible for us. And he often wants to do it, or he'll do it, more than we can ask or imagine, as we've already heard before. I mean, I don't know really what the guys were praying, neither do you. We can assume 
that they were asking for some sort of deliverance. But I think that what God did superseded their expectations. The way that Peter was delivered was amazing. There's nothing human about it. It was just purely supernatural from beginning to end. So Peter was free. That's awesome. But Herod was also killed. At the end of the chapter, Herod is eaten by worms. How cool is that? God did more. Also, the 16 guards, they were also killed. Now again, I just, I'm just, as I think this through, I'm thinking, you know, God is able to bless the righteous and to judge the wicked. And I just imagine that those 16 guys, I reckon there were 16 guys that were mongrels. I reckon there were probably guys who were good guys who called in sick that day. And so the next person in the line was the guy who, who maybe he was one of the guys that was, gave Jesus an extra hard flogging. And he just happened to be there that day. And maybe, they were, you know, maybe he was the guy that took pleasure in taking James's head off. Or whatever it might be. But God, I just, I just wouldn't be surprised if there were people, these guys were extra deserving of a bit of quick judgment. And there they were. But, but, but... <laughs> I don't know. He was there one minute. <laughs> Lost their heads, all of them. God does more than we can ask or hope or even imagine. You know, when Tone and I, some 19, 20 years ago now, started praying, just having a sense of there's more, just being part of a local church, excited about what God was doing in and through us and just the potential of the church and just praying that God would just fulfill something of his heart and desire for the church. We never envisioned this. We, we, we had things in our minds that were great and exciting and, and many of those things have, been, have happened, but this is way beyond. Even what's happening now is way beyond what we initially thought of. We were, just, we were just hoping that a few more people get on the same page in the church. There'd be a bit more expectation, a few more healings. You know, that God's name will be glorified, that our influence would grow. As it, and suddenly there's another church that's planted. And over time it's, it's grown. It's having more and more influence. There's a cafe, there's a playground. There's, there's things that there's, our influence is now into the tens of thousands in this community. And it's going to go way beyond that into the future. God's done way more than we asked or imagined. We were pretty audacious when we were asking. I mean, I'm sure we shook our fist. God, you've got to move. <laughs> if you don't. <laughs> but, but again, we weren't struck dead for being a little bit presumptuous and perhaps even obnoxious because the Bible says come boldly into his throne. And so that's what we did. Come with expectation. That's what we did. Because God's not going to kill his kids that are just a little bit overenthusiastic. Better that than have no expectation. So James died. Peter was miraculously released. Just as a little side note, James didn't get the short end of the stick. You know, why did bad things happen to good people? What happened to James wasn't ultimately a bad thing. Paul's contention was, I really don't want to be here anymore. I'd much rather go and be with the Lord. But as it is, I have a sense that there's still more work for me to do, so I'll put up with it, put up with you lot. And we'll do what we can while we're here. But to die, sorry, to live is Christ. To die 
is gain. And so we need to understand that. That behind all that we see, and sometimes the, the seemingly unfair, unfairness of situations, the tragedy of some circumstances, that in the midst of it, God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. From an eternal perspective, he, he lost nothing. He gained everything. If you're talking about short straws, Pete got the short straw. Pete went on to get rebuked by Paul. <laughs> he went on to get his head cut off later on. Sorry, he got crucified upside down later on. He, he had to put up with the church, even as we read some of Paul's struggles. So let's not get too caught up with the here and now. We're living in the here and now, but let's not forget the eternal perspective. Let's not feel sorry for James. And some, some of the things that are going to, we're going to go through, we're going to see beyond just the here and now. Acts chapter 12 begins with Herod in power and Peter in prison. It finishes with Herod dead, Peter released, and the gospel being spread throughout the earth. Stuff happens. It's hard to make sense of sometimes. But behind the apparent injustice and hostility of this world, we live that we live in. There's a God who loves us. There's a God who is totally for us. A God who is so powerful, he is so just, that he's not perturbed by the fact that in the short term, we misunderstand his methods. <laughs> that he cops a bit of a bad rap from us. That we don't get him. Because ultimately, every person is going to stand before God. And the Bible says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And every sense of injustice that we have about this God that allowed this to happen, and what about that, and that's not fair. Every sense of injustice that we have will be stripped away, and we will stand in awe and say, truly, God is good. Truly, God is right in everything that he does. This story essentially is about a door being opened. And that door was opened through prayer. And Jesus isn't just into opening prison doors, literal prison doors, but he's ultimately into opening a whole bunch of doors. His word says that he came to set captives free. You don't have to be in a literal prison to be free. The Bible talks about the fact that before we come to know Christ, we're all held in bondage to the fear of death, for example. We're all in the grip of sin. These things are prisons that hold us. We're in the prison of condemnation. Possibly there's the prison of addiction. Possibly there's the, 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 the prison of bitterness or the prison of disappointment. There's a whole bunch of prisons that people live their lives in. And Jesus is able to break people out of every one of those prisons. It starts when we, I guess, come to him and ask to be released from the prison of self. The prison where the walls are the fear of death, of, of sin, unable to do the things that we want to do, etc., etc., etc. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen 